Kara. Hey, Chris, how are you doing today? I am surprisingly incoherent given the number of medications I am on to make me coherent. In so you're willing to I... share why you, you and your wife are on a fair number of meds at the moment? Yeah, so we both uh, were tested for COVID and we in the rapid test, we were both negative, but she's immunocompromised, so she got the PCR as well and was still feeling poorly and getting worse. And then, so not surprising, she got a message two days later that she was positive on the PCR. So we're both in uh, breakthrough lockdown. They're treating me as though I am positive, even though I have not yet tested positive. I'm still waiting for the PCR. But what the monoclonal antibody treatment is, especially if you go to a local urgent care and not the medical center, is... Urgent a, care has that? Mm -hmm. That's yeah, impressive. That's, that's actually where I go for my primary care, too, because the doctor mm. is easier to get into and quicker. And and, um, and and so they throw the kitchen sink at you, um, mm. both probably for insurance purposes for them, because they're making a lot of coin on it. Um, but also, you know, we have Thanksgiving coming up and we're like, we don't know what to do. We have family coming and they're like, well, yeah. we'll just treat you both. We'll treat you obviously have it and you like you are positive since you probably have it and give you all this treatment so it was six shots two in my ass two in my stomach one in each arm and then uh a course of a really intense steroid oh, mm. and then another um, um an antibiotic and an inhaler so my all of that and yet all i've done today is nap uh any symptoms Anything nope. pop up for you? Yep. Okay. Nope. Well, that's good. Not for me. I wonder if the, the exhaustion is just the vast amount of medication flowing through your veins right now. Highly probably. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, I don't like uppers as uh, steroids and stuff like that. They make my heart race and oh, yeah. all the things. They also, although they, they're not, they are. Huh? Interesting. They're not making, they're, they're making me kind of like, oh, feel like I'm on them, but I I can just lay around and take a take a lucid nap all day long. Uh, a course of steroids just like completely fucks me up for like two weeks. I don't sleep. I retain all the water ever, and I want to do nothing but eat and then murder people. That's yeah. That's usually <laughs> the murdering is what I was afraid of, but I'm not <laughs> um, homicidally inclined at all. I'm just Maybe. I'm like yeah, I'd rather rather have a nap. You go right on doing your. Your annoying things. I'll just sit here and listen to podcasts and take another nap. I would so much prefer that over the murder rage and hungry. Constant, yeah. well, constant hunger. Yesterday I ate nothing. Literally oh. nothing until 10 p.m. I finally ate. Granted, you Did do that. You've done that many a time. I feel like there was a whole like period of the pandemic where you were telling me you didn't eat until midnight and then you yeah. ate everything. So what I'm saying is, is the... The steroids have not changed my diet at all. It just amplified the weird pattern I'd fallen into anyway. I'm like, why am I not hungry? Yeah. I don't know. No, I don't know. So I'm not a geneticist. Mm -hmm. um, and Me neither are you. Um, we all know Richard Lewington's work probably from two papers, I'm going to guess. My primary familiarity with him is from the co-author paper he did with Stephen Jay Gould called The Pan-Glossian Spandrels of San mm -hmm. Marcos. Uh, mm -hmm. and the Adaptation is Paradigms. One of my all-time favorite articles to assign, discuss. Classic. And remember, because I'm a big-time adaptationist. So the other <laughs> one is the, what, the misclassification or misapportionment of human something or other. Is that Lewinton's paper on, on genetics from the like 1972? The apportionment of human diversity. That's it. Yeah, it helps Which, have the uh, paper nearby. Hopefully we all read, at least in grad school, and then several thousand times over. I totally Eric, did not read that in Eric grad did school. Not. Although so, the, the spandrels I did. I totally read the spandrels. Tom Brutzart definitely assigned the spandrels, and either um, Tim Gage or Tom Brutzart assigned the other one. So I know I read them as an intro grad student and, and have discussed them ad infinitum ever since meaning a lot and yet i don't know what lewinton's fallacy is because i did not read the later critique that much later that charles roseman has much much later 
also then come back and critiqued. I imagine some other people have along the way. But this is all sort of following on Nicholas Wade's piece of shit book from a few years ago that everybody hated in anthropology land, right? I see you taking some stabs at Steven Pinker. He was Steven Pinker before Steven Pinker. Even Steven Pinker's not original. That's the thing, yeah. something that people should point out a little bit more often. Now that he's no longer part of the board of trustees, advisory board of this bullshit University of Austin thing going around. So I never dislike Pinker as much as the rest of y'all, but I, I'm i coming to be like, meh. But um, Nicholas Wade book definitely was like a piece of garbage when it landed. So mm. let's... Um, do you know what Lewinton's fallacy is? Do you know? Well, the Lewinton's fallacy is based on the Edwards paper. So um, Lewinton's paper came out in what, like 72? Yeah, mm -hmm. 72. And this I was, guy. I was, I was one. You were, I, was, I was not even a, a, a glimmer in my parents' eyes. My parents were not even married at that point. Um, I might sorry. have been one. You might have been one. Anyway, so Lewinton's paper came out in 1972, and this guy, Anthony Edwards, uh, wrote a paper kind of in response to Lewinton, mm -hmm. but like not until 2003. So it's like way, 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 way after uh, saying Lewinton was was wrong. So Lewinton was saying that anytime we try to come up with some sort of racial taxonomy based on biological variation, it just never works. It never actually represents human variation that you cannot logically uh, or appropriately group people based on genetic loci or allele frequency into racial categories. And so Edwards is like, no, no, you can. So what Lewinton's saying is wrong. So it's called Lewinton's fallacy. And so that was Edward, Edwards' paper, 2003. And then Charles Rosen comes along as in like a month ago. No, no, yeah, a month ago, October 12th is when it came out, um, saying, no, 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 Edwards, you are the wrong one. Uh, and here's why Lewinton is correct. So the crazy thing about this, and one one of the many crazy things, right? This I just referenced the fact that you know Lewinton's paper came out when I was around one, and I'm 50, right? So this is this is not a new thing, right? This is a long-standing part of genetics. Uh, some of the other articles that we're not discussing today, but that are will be fruitful for future conversations, <laughs> are sort of you know this came out in 72, and we're still wrestling with it. In anthropology, is anthropology just super behind? Because, you know, 50 years is a long time to chew on something. Welcome to the Sausage Science, Charles. How you doing? I'm well. I, I am exhausted. It has been a day of, of talking on Zoom and presenting shit on Zoom. But you yeah. actually get to meet Chris for the first time. Hello, Chris. Hello, Charles. Nice to meet you. Your, your, your video has disappeared, but I can still hear you. Well, um, you know, uh, my father in second place in an ugly man contest. And I look just like him. So <laughs> you are really not missing a whole lot. Welcome to the sausage of science, where self-deprecation is uh, cheap, <laughs> cheap among our conversation points, <laughs> as always. Anyway, shall we get started? Let's get started. Let's get started. Dr. Charles Roseman is an associate professor in the Department of Evolution, Ecology, and Behavior in the School of Integrative Biology at the University of Illinois. And his research focuses on asking questions about the causes of variation and the evolution of complex traits. And Charles, as we talked about, and as we have done for four years, five years now, we start every show the same way, which is getting to know a little bit more about you and how you got to where you are. So I know you have an interesting story uh, of how you decided to go into anthropology slash evolutionary biology. I know there's, a, there's an interesting story there as well. So go ahead, take it away. Tell us about your journey. Well, uh, I guess there's the obligatory, you know, I, I've been interested in um, science since I was a little kid, uh, which is true. Um, but I had a really rough stretch during my teen years. And after I got out of it, I, I um, had to, I, I dropped out of high school and then ended up taking an equivalency exam so that I could go to a community college to, um, to uh, start accumulating credits so that I could transfer to a university. And at that point, I was really convinced that um, I wasn't going to be able to do science because I had missed so much of my primary education. Um, but in my first year at university, which was the University of Southern California, I was taking a political science class at the same time I was taking a, a biological anthropology class. And this was in the spring of 1995. 
So, um, Chris, you and I, Generation Xers, have to put up with a millennial today, but um, <laughs> that is something that we're used to uh, since there's so few of us and so many of them. It's true. Um, and by uh, getting shit on so soon into this episode, <laughs> it usually takes a little while. <laughs> it was a it was a preemptive shitting on. Um, I I appreciate it. It it usually it's Michigan people piling on. <laughs> So, um, and this is about the time when the bell curve came out, and I, I read the bell curve as part of doing a um, a term project for my uh, my political science class, and I was taking biological anthropology at the same time. You know, I saw a lot of I saw a lot of parallels and a lot of uh, interesting. Uh, I was getting a lot of interesting things out of the biological anthropology class that gave me a completely different view on the book than anybody else in my political science class had. Um, and, you know, I, I got really interested in the genetics of complex traits as a result. And um, so I just kind of decided to uh, pursue this, uh, pursue the study of human variation as my uh, professional, uh, my professional ambition was to pursue questions in, in uh, human variation. Now, now, if I can interject a question right here, I noticed mm -hmm. in the acknowledgments to your paper, you thanked your father, I think, for turning you on to W.E.B. Du Bois. So I wonder at what point he had done that, and so what sort of uh, consciousness of the, the, the issues in the book uh, were you aware of when you initially read it? How much was your own and, and your, your, maybe your father's training or your influence... And, and how much was coming out of your reading in bioamp when you reacted yeah. to that? So um, I'd been uh, so one of the things I did when I dropped out of high school was um, to hide in a local. I technically dropped out before I was allowed to drop out. I just didn't go, um, but I would hang out sometimes in a local you know library, and uh, I figured that absolutely no one in their right mind would look for a, a truant there, and you know I just read books and, um, and uh, talk to my dad, who was a, a geographer and also a PhD. And, um, and, uh, he, uh, did social and historic, historical geography and introduced me to a lot of the, uh, the big name social theorists and that sort of thing. Um, but working with him and then working as a, uh, research assistant for James Diego Vigil, who is at the university of California, Irvine. Uh, he was also influential in that respect. Uh, this line of thinking has really sort of reached its apotheosis with the uh, uh, completion of the dissertation by uh, doc now Dr. Uh, Shea Hill McLean. Um, he's really picked up on the parallels between uh, Du Bois's thought and Darwinian thought, and he's come up with some fascinating ideas. Mm. Shea was on our show how long ago at this point? Mm. I think it may have actually been before he moved over to UIUC. He was one of like our earlier guests on the show. He had just moved. Or maybe just, just moved. moved. Okay. Mm -hmm. But uh, so then tell us how, you know, you go from a political science class and then a bioanthropology class to deciding to focus on the genetics aspect for your work. Yeah. So um, it was a TA of my biology classes who recommended that I learn genetics. And in the, sem uh, in the, the argument he made was that once you learn the genetics, since that's common to all organisms um, with, you know, variations here and there, um, you, that I would be able to go into just about anything else. And it was really sage advice. Um, and I can't remember his name. Um, but uh, so I, I took a lot of evolution classes um, in, in biology, took anthropology classes, philosophy, psychology, a few other things like that. Kind of cobbled cobbled it all together into a um, interdisciplinary major, so hmm. it was really flexible, almost a la carte approach to getting a, a bachelor's degree. I like but, those interdisciplinary majors, and I feel like I don't see those programs often enough. Yeah, well, you know, it was a it was a really really good experience for me. I uh, uh, having some. You know, I couldn't resent taking a class simply because I was the one who told myself to take it. You know, hmm. um, that was <laughs> that was part of the um, that was part of the good thing. Yeah. 
so I I want to I want to throw this out there, not because we're going to discuss it, but just to tease our listeners for for the future. So so you have some strong opinions about the future of biological anthropology that I would love to talk more about. I know you're working on a book, but I, you know, I, I'll at, at some future date, right? I think it'll be useful to really think about the role of interdisciplinarity and interdisciplinary education in in molding some of us and how we think about where anthropology belongs versus people who came up in four-field programs. Because I know if I ask my students in a four-field program if they believe in four-field anthropology, of course they do because they have applied to come in there and they have these these stakes in it. So um, I find your background really interesting. I think it's funny, you're the first person who hasn't said, I have a really uh, unusual background um, and yours is the first one that actually is, in my opinion, more unusual than the others, because most of the others don't entail a, a dropout period, right, of, of self of self learning, um, when you are actually skipping school to go to the library, uh, which is awesome. Because my my one time skipping school, I also nerdly went to the library. So while you were in the library, perhaps you ran across something that would have come out when, if you and I are approximately the same age, when we were around one years old. Right, which was Richard Lewinton's piece on the um, apportionment. I can't remember the title of it. Um, Carrie, you have it there. Mm. There we so, go. The apportionment of human diversity. Which yeah. So um, I didn't run into it there. Uh, so it it well, it was circulated in the anthropology community and the sort of uh, human genetics community uh, for a while. Um, it really didn't take off. Uh, in terms of notoriety or popularity until about the time the bell curve took off. And uh, it's been a really interesting bibliometric study by uh, Carlson and Harris that's out that uh, about the uh, patterns of citation of Lewinton's uh, work, uh, and specifically this one, and uh, the ways in which Lewinton's fallacy or accusations of view of Lewinton's fallacy are used on social media. It's, it's a really interesting um, interesting study there, but, um, so it wasn't, you know, it all sort of hit me all at once. I didn't really have any sense that, uh, of genetics, what genetics was, where it might take me and anything like that. I should say I'm not, not a geneticist by any stretch of the imagination. Um, uh, I do some very, very interesting in that respect. So, uh, yeah. And, I'm sorry, please go ahead. So, no, no, I was just going to sort of jump ahead. So so this is this helps explain something, right, to, to me. Um, so a lot of our listeners are grad students. So this sort of like latency period will be a big mystery to, to them. And what Karen and I were just discussing before you came on is how this article came out in 72. Um, the, the fallacy came out in the 80s. And now here we are in 2021. Um, still talking about this, and it's an even longer gap from between the modern synthesis to Sherry Washburn asked for evolution to be integrated into biological anthropology. So I'm uh, the bibliographic, uh, what do you call it? The bi bibliometric history of this is fascinating, and I, I think that deserves its own sort of conversation about how ideas wax and wane in, in the imagination and in our discipline. And, and, and you would think this would have like blown up in 72 and, and, and we would have moved on, but it's like, we're still trying to figure out how to come to terms with it. So what is Lewinton's fallacy? One of my pronouncing his last name, right? Cause I have no idea. <laughs> um, I've, heard two, it, I've heard it both ways. So, okay. okay. So uh, we're going with Lewinton today. Mm -hmm. Um, what's, what's the fallacy and, and what do we think about that in biological anthropology? I almost want to back you up and actually have us discuss what Lewinton said, mm -hmm. and then we bring up the fallacy. Okay. Should we start there? Maybe <laughs> let's go chronological. <laughs> um. I'm a very orderly person and, and Chris is not, this is where we butt heads. <laughs> okay. Um. Order and I, ask, I usually ask question six first, and Kara likes to start with. I just one. rage inside when he does that. Like mm. there is an order, goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a. Um, <laughs> the anyway, uh, so um, towards the late sixties, early seventies, Richard Lewinton was already a very highly respected scientist. He had been elected to the National Academy of Sciences and. 
had appointments at a number of different places, including Chicago, before he ended up at, at Harvard for the remainder of his career. But he, um, uh, he uh, eventually resigned from the National Academy of Sciences because he objected to uh, not being allowed to see all of the, uh, all the documents that they, the government wanted uh, consultations on because some of it was secret weapons research and things like that. And he said, if it wasn't open, then it, then it wasn't for him. And so, um, and this kind of gives you a, a sense of, of his character and that he uh, was quite principled and, uh, and, and stuck to his guns and uh, was very socially active for a long um, And that really picks up in the late 60s, early 70s, after Arthur Jensen publishes uh, um, an article called how much can we boost IQ and scholastic achievement in the Harvard Educational Review? And um, this, in this, he argued that uh, IQ was more or less genetically fixed in individuals. Uh, any sort of environmental effects on them are very, very mild and do not persist. And as such, uh, trying to address class and race uh, gaps in academic achievement or uh, test scores or anything like that was just futile and we, and we shouldn't bother with it. And uh, so uh, he wrote, Lewinton that is, wrote a uh, response to Jensen uh, called Race and Intelligence, which was published of all places in the bulletin, the Atomic Scientists, uh, which I never and I never asked why that was, but it was. You don't, you don't have a subscription to the Atomic Scientists? Kara and I do. <laughs> I, I got a good library. Um, <laughs> the, so, and, and he made mincemeat of Jensen's genetic and evolutionary arguments. Uh, it, it, it's almost, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's almost a painful read, the, the, the degree to which he just absolutely stomps him. And um, so, and then this got him a little bit deeper into some um, critical thinking about biology and society. And uh, the next major contribution to a series of papers that he, that he worked on was the 1972 apportionment of human diversity uh, paper. And the idea was to see whether racial classification was important for at least studying human variation. And this is, uh, you know, uh, the terms population and race and subspecies in some corners of biology can be equivalent to one another, some corners of biology, they're very distinct things. Uh, he meant it in sort of the classic physical anthropology sense, sort of the sense that he might have gotten from, say, a, a Carlton Kuhn, who is a um, um, physical anthropologist who uh, sort of revived a uh, evolutionary polygenism and was uh, awfully chummy with segregationists and things like that. Um, and so it's a, a really simple study and then he gathered up a whole bunch of the polymorphism data at the time. And I, I don't remember exactly how many spots in the genome he was able to collect for, but it was um, more than 15 um, and uh, fewer than 20 loci. Or, and loci being a, uh, a term to describe the location in the genome. And uh, you just, you imagine the uh, chromosome being a string of beads, as, as the metaphor often goes, um, just it's one of the lo locations uh, uh, along that string of beads. So, um, and he classified uh, local groups that were sort of the sampled groups, um, and we can get into sampling a little bit later. It's it's kind of tangential to the art, but um, really really important in the big picture, and he. Uh, aggregated them into regional races in the way that physical anthropologists would uh, until that sort of project kind of ran out of gas in the 60s. Um, and uh, he just used a, a pretty simple statistical technique to ask how much of the variation, so how much of the uh, of, of a scaled measure of difference among individuals and, uh, or how much of the variation was among individuals within that local group? How much variation was among groups 
within the regional races, and then how much of the variation was among the regional races. Okay, so there are a few levels of the, this analysis. And the naive expectation that you might get from old physical anthropology is that there is some sort of uh, type, some sort of um, uh, idealized uh, form around which all individuals within a putative race must cluster. It, the prediction was if races were true, out there, if they were good for organizing human variation, they should account for a lot of the variation. And you end up with the classic result, which is 85% um, of variation was within populations. So just regular individual genetic differences among people in a, in a town in whatever part of the world. Uh, so in, in, a, in a smaller fraction was among those local groups within a racial category and a still smaller um, uh, proportion was among races. And, you know, to first approximation, this, this has been, uh, this is a result that's been repeated um, with each iteration of new technologies that allow us to uh, sequence the genome in different ways and genotype individuals in different ways. Okay, so that's in, in what he ended up doing was um, uh, saying that, and I'll just quote from him, is that um, it is clear that our perception of relatively large differences between human races and subgroups as compared to the variation within these groups is indeed a biased perception and that based on randomly chosen genetic differences, human races and populations are remarkably similar to each other, with the largest part by far of human variation being accounted for by the differences between individuals. And the upshot of this, according to Lewinton, is that human racial classification is of no social value and is positively destructive of social and human relations, since such racial classification is now seen to be of virtually no genetic or taxonomic significance either. No justification can be offered for its continuance. All right, so uh, he, that, and that's sort of where he stops. He, he just says that, okay, uh, race does not explain the variation terribly well. Um, there's a bit of a leap in logic there in that uh, he doesn't talk about what a th objective threshold might be, if we can even talk in those terms, because of the, the, he's dealing with between zero and one, and it's going to vary continuously. So how much is a lot is a um, kind of an interesting question. Uh, so, the, the, you know, the 6% or, or whatever uh, sounds like a, a, a small proportion, but there's no real comparison there. And that's one of the one of the criticisms that's been um, directed at him. But that's the fallacy. Um, so, is that clear? Uh, do you want me to go over anything else? I just wanted to point out. I don't know if this is is what you're getting to, but when I, we teach this, we usually throw in what what the threshold is that has been projected onto this, which is uh, uh, the the closest one they can come they can use is us what what they use to determine subspecies. So if we go up a level, or if we if we can equate it with something that's useful uh, in non-human um, comparisons, then they use uh, the the amount of variation between groups that they attribute to subspecies. Is that is that where you're headed? Um, yeah. So there 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 are a lot of a lot of argument about what uh, what that threshold ought to be. And the the lizard people have a different criterion than the bird people than the. That is not what I was hoping you meant by lizard people. Yeah, well, we're I'm talking to a, a shark, shark person right now. <laughs> we're talking we're talking to a shark person soon, so I'm gonna I'm gonna turn around and find out what the fish people think about this too. But, but wait, wait, sharks not a fish though, right? Aren't they considered? Yeah, they're yeah. different. They're cartilaginous. Sharks anyway. are, sharks are fish in the same sense that we're fish. See, I like Charles. Right. So <laughs> when you talk about these things where there was a bit of a logic leap for Lewinton and then there is this question about the threshold, um, this kind of brings us to Edward's piece. And then also the, the thing that we kind of forgot to say is that 
your your commentary that came out came to our attention because of a bit of a, a Facebook kerfuffle where there were lots of people like, no, Lewinton's fallacy is true, and you know, you know, citing Edwards and others. So walk us through because it was uh, Edwards came out with a paper literally titled Lewinton's fallacy, which like that's 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 pretty fucking bold. Uh, so yeah. tell us what he thinks Lewinton's fallacy was. And then tell us about the analysis he conducted to try to say Lewinton was wrong and where the pitfalls there are. Okay. So um, Edwards' motivations for writing the paper had to do with the um, way in which the popular media and people in the social sciences and humanities were using Lewinton's result. And it's a, it's a, it's a nice digestible, digestible tidbit of information that is very easy to port from one context to another. Um, and it's, it's also not terribly meaningful for reasons that we'll get to in a little while. But um, he was, the first part of his critique is, is uh, showing a bunch of misuses of the statistics, the statistic in this, uh, and misinterpretations of it by various people. So when um, he gets to uh, Lewinton's fallacy, uh, which centers around whether one um, can usefully develop uh, um, racial taxonomies in humans. Um, so we'll get to what useful means in a minute. And what he says is that, um, and this is how he describes the fallacy in the section of the paper that begins with, uh, or that's titled The Fallacy. And he says that these conclusions are based on the old statistical fallacy of analyzing data on the assumption that it contains no information beyond that revealed locus by locus analysis and then drawing conclusions solely on the results of such an analysis. The, in quotes, taxonomic significance uh, uh, of genetic data, in fact, often arise from correlation amongst different, the different loci that may contain the information which enables a stable classification to be uncovered. All right, so I, I kind of take it for granted that and that if something is going to be of taxonomic significance, it has to help us uh, answer some uh, some questions about this. So the the first misstep in Edwards' argument is that he starts to conflate a number of different types of ways in which things can be correlated. And the relevant one is the one that he opens with. Um, the, the rest is really kind of boring, and if you're, unless you're an aggressive pedant like me, you just don't want to deal with it. But um, so uh, right after he says that, he shifts to uh, an alter alternative to test hypothesis about the evolutionary relationships among groups and um, the dynamics of uh, whether um, you know, evolutionary rates were the same, whether you had recovered a good phylogeny with the right order of uh, branching, and whether there was uh, gene flow or anastomosing among the different lineages of the, uh, uh, that, you're, that you were studying. And so he, Edward says, uh, Cavalli Sforza and Piazza in 1975 coined the word treeness to describe the extent to which a tree-like structure was hidden amongst the present data. Lewinton's superficial analysis ignores this aspect of the structure of the data and leads inevitably to the conclusion that the data do not possess such structure. Okay, so let's, let's think about some ways in which you can generate uh, evolutionary correlations. And what I mean by that is that, uh, uh, it's really quite simple, is that do the evolutionary outcomes of different populations uh, result uh, in Similarities that you don't expect if you're just evolving independently from a single common ancestor. So if a phylogeny matters, if a, if a population tree matters, or if gene flow matters, uh, groups that are more closely related to one another in an evolutionary sense, or migrants, you'll just expect those to have more similarities genomically than uh, more distantly related organisms. And so it's those evolutionary forces that build up correlations in the trajectories of the changes in allele frequencies over the generation. 
And as we said, uh, you know, natural selection can do this sort of thing. You can think about convergent and parallel evolution, but on across many, many loci, that's uh, sort of an absurd proposition that we're not going to entertain today. The gene flow and the common ancestry is quite important. Now, the, the, the structure of Lewinton's argument here is very important. Uh, he analyzed local groups that were nested within the racial groups that were themselves nested in the greater human species. All right. Now, it's obvious from this setup is that you couldn't tell what the proportion of variation between the human and mice, for instance, would be. Um, it's not a terribly interesting question, and um, I'm not sure what it would get you, but that's because they were only considering humans, main of your comparison. So all you can do is divide it, the variation up into the individual variation within local groups, the variation between local groups within races, and then the variation among the different racial groups. All right, now, um, the thing is that while he got a rather low number or an intuitively low number or something that has been interpreted as a low number uh, for the uh, proportion of among racial grouping um, variation, uh, the result is only possible if you have shared evolution. Those groups, those racial groups, the, the groups within uh, the, the putative racial groups have to have some combination of common ancestry and gene flow for that to happen. So this kind of, uh, of covariation among the evolutionary trajectories, the evolutionary outcomes of these populations is absolutely uh, necessary for Lewinton to get his result. Okay, so in that case, um, Lewinton didn't really commit in this fallacy. And then he just kind of lets the issue drop. He says, okay, this is a small proportion. We're not getting anywhere with this. Uh, this is not good for the study of, of human variation. We're, we're going to move on. Okay. So is that clear? Um, this is, so for Edwards basically uh, said that he didn't use the pre-existing models and integrate them to see how they relate is let me let me let me back up a little bit so as, as you're talking i'm thinking of, of mm -hmm. cavalli's fours is treeness mm -hmm. right this idea of there being a model and if i'm doing a regression analysis usually i'm i have this a priori model and i i test how things are relating to my model and i'm oftentimes worried that i'm pushing on my model so hard that i'm finding false positives it mm -hmm. sounds a little bit like we're saying if you push the data onto a predetermined model, like we think that there are multiple races with multiple independent origins, we could probably find the loci um, that would complement that if we're choosing um, appropriately. Am I on the right track? Yeah, so um, this would be... Uh, the, the, that's that's a that's a good parallel, I think. Okay. So the idea here is that what Lewinton is doing is asking the question: uh, Does this explain a lot? He doesn't take it to the next step, which is to do the multi-model comparison. So what sorts of models do fit the data better? And um, that is uh, that's something that a lot of people, uh, including myself, have, have done for a very long time. And uh, since you brought up Cavalli Sforza, uh, the, the way he explained it in his, his 1994 book was, uh, you know, the reason why they don't use races in that book as a uh, as an organizing principle is that so much of the correlations induced by evolution, whether it's drift or or uh, gene flow, um, happen um, in ways that are not reflected by racial categories. They can be substructure within a, a continent. So you can have populations that are much more closely related to one another than others. You can end up with patterns of relationship across continents. Um, so to a certain extent, it might be like analyzing uh, a variation where you take a whole bunch of primates and throw them into different categories 
and you decide to throw humans and chimpanzees and gorillas into one discrete category and the remainder of the apes into another category and then you do these and so on and so forth, um, you are both going against the grain of the way evolution actually worked mm. and you're ignoring a lot of the potential similarity that random evolution along these lineages might have caused. Yeah, because we're trying to fit it to this a priori model we have about what race is and that it's actually mm -hmm. a thing. Yeah, that makes sense. And I do want to point out for our listeners, if our editors don't catch it, I mentioned that this paper was written in like the 80s or something. But no, it's 2003. So it's it's like mm -hmm. we're talking it's about like three, yesterday. three yeah. decades later <laughs> where someone is like uh, uh, slowly sitting with with the accumulation of models that Kabbalah Sforza mm -hmm. uh, and the genetics that have accumulated and then the technology and the genomics revolution. So where does that leave us? Where are we now? And that would be, I think, where you, your, your, your philosophical piece uh, helps. Yeah. Um, I've never been accused of being philosophical. I don't know what this is on. Well, the anytime you twist your beard, you look like a, a philosopher. That's just a rule. A road the tick. I, I stopped chewing my fingernails for the first time in my life over the over the pandemic, and I picked up the the, the beard pulling. Yeah, no, I grew I grew facial hair specifically to stop chewing on my fingers. So I feel you. Huh. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Yeah, um, hair, but... I think we have a paper there. Um, <laughs> this must the, be a Gen X thing. I think that's. Just... I just chew. I chew on my mustache now, though. So, you know. There's extra um, food in there that you missed. Uh, sadly. So, um, what? Uh, what I'd say, and I, I don't know if you. Uh, well, what I'd say is that the um, we need to be a lot more careful about what we're really seeing when we're proposing certain models. Because for the most part, uh, as you pointed out with regression, um, if you have a uh, if you have a strong preconceived notion of say what your residuals are going to look like or how the the data are are organized in one in one way or another or how things ought to relate to one another, uh, you can shoehorn just about anything into that, and you can get highly statistically significant results between groups that don't really exist. Mm. And that's kind of what's happening here. And this makes uh, the use of this statistic uh, or that the within groups, uh, within local groups and so many percent among local groups, so on and so forth, um, really fraught in the sense that um, unless you know what the models are, somebody can turn it around and say, yes, there are highly statistically significant differences between these groups. Mm. And they are highly statistically significant. They just don't, they just don't exist in the sense that they don't reflect the patterns of ancestry and gene flow that led to the evolutionary similarities and differences among different spots in the world. So this was something that you and I talked about the other day a little bit of, you know, human biologists and, you know, a lot of people within biological anthropology, we talk about our populations and of course, you know, race is put into this and it depends on how that's framed and presented depending on the study. And you, you talked about the utility and meaning of using race or using population for purposes of study. And you kind of called these tricks of convenience. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm curious about how you see or how you think we should move forward um, to, to do better science and, and, you know, what does population actually mean when we're doing this work mm -hmm. uh, and why we might want to take a look at a racial and do we even look at a populational models? What, so what can we do to be better? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> self-improvement is probably not much on point, but, um, you stopped uh, biting your nails, so you're capable of self-improvement. Well, now I scratch myself. I, I'm to, you know, anytime I itch something, I take a chunk of flesh away with it. And so, you know, you're, you're, you know. One primate behavior replaces another. You know, I, I, I draw on Joseph Felsenstein's advice about taxonomy. Mm 
which is just don't do it. Um, it's not particularly useful. There are not population world, except in very strange circumstances, and usually in the lab, um, in the sense that we none of the local groupings that we might identify as a unit to sample from are uh, random mating Mendelian populations. None of them. So um, that idealized population does not really exist. But to a certain extent, this is exactly like why we beat the drum so hard when it comes to Hardy Weinberg, is that sometimes uh, we're close enough. And, you know, the, one of the ways I like to think about this is the I've been a Greek since I was a kid, and uh, I, you know, I, um, I remember life events in terms of how you know, which probe hit which planet at what time and, and that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, if I'm sitting there and I'm browsing a batch of photos from the Juno probe that's in orbit around Jupiter, you know, as long as the resolution is high enough, I'd, uh, I'd be able to enjoy myself while doing that. There's lots of aesthetic beauty. Um, so the fact that the, each pixel on the surface might be something along the lines of, you know, 10, 20, 30 kilometers wide doesn't really matter because I'm not studying the atmosphere of, of Jupiter. I don't need that kind of resolution. But, you know, if I am, um, now, uh, you know, you could also think of it this way. If we, if we wanted to take a picture of Jupiter that one could enjoy and then make it into something that we would have no idea what we're looking at, um, you can take, say, that nice picture of Jupiter and uh, reduce it to the, res the resolution to three by three pixels, so you get nine pixels. And um, at the equator, that would be about 23,000 kilometers across per pixel. And um, what you'd end up with is one sort of lightish looking pixel surrounded by eight less lightish looking pixels. And, you know, if you're Banksy or some other well-known artist, you can print it, frame it, and sell it for an absurd amount of money, right? But uh, for the rest of us who like to look at pretty pictures of planets, um, this won't do at all. Okay. So you'd have to be a, a real troll or an, a, just an obscenely aggressive pedant to take a look at, um, you know, an image on a computer screen and then say that, well, this isn't this isn't accurate. This isn't uh, giving this, giving us all the glory and of, uh, of three dimensions or four dimensions, however many dimensions you want. Um, this is flattening everything. The, the, you're not really looking at true curvature. You're looking at uh, blurred pixels and that sort of thing. And it's just, um, you know, there are people like that out there, um, but uh, they're not doing anyone any good. Um, so when it comes to what our models look like and what uh, they're good for, we need to uh, make certain sacrifices in that, uh, you know, uh, you know the, the active understanding in science is largely a, uh, a feat of knowing what one can ignore. So as long as a local group or a population, if you want to call them that, is closer to the, um, the ideal randomly mating Mendelian population of the geneticist's imagination um, uh, by a good margin over what you see across the entire range of the species, you have, um, uh, you're in good shape. You can use a lot of evolutionary genetic tools to test uh, the relative fits of different models and um, kind of uh, get a sense of how things evolved. So that's uh, these are the some of the, some of the sacrifices in terms of realism um, we make are necessary for interpretability. Uh, the problem with the three by three picture uh, pixel picture of Jupiter is that you know it's uh, it, it's just not very useful for the purpose that we wanted to use it. If you want to fool some rich person and giving you lots of money as a, a and you're a well-known artist, then then it's great. Or um, his name's Charles Davenport, in which case, you know. <laughs> oh, he's an interesting case. 
Um, yeah, but so what people who are advocating for racial groupings and are saying that they are uh, carrying the Darwinian torch and they are the ones who are uh, being brave and transgressive and finding the truth that some sort of global Marxist conspiracy uh, is trying to uh, cover up, um, when they do that, they're making it clear to me that they're not interested in evolution. They're interested in just uh, cementing a certain kind of di a difference in people's imagination. It, it makes me think of the current, uh, I would say conversation, but it's more a hysteria about teaching critical race theory, which my, my governor was, um, I, I'll say, bold enough to ban, which means that my faculty can can be up in arms and and actually push it more so i i was mm -hmm. thinking i was actually listening um to um nicole hannah jones who started the 1619 project um discussing the 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 issue of new york times magazine that sort of set the ball rolling on on setting the the date for the beginning of the formation of our country, the United States, at 1619, when they brought the first transatlantic slaves to the U.S., and how much pushback she got, and how it has actually, it's like, there's no such thing as, as bad press. Like, we're getting an opportunity to talk about something really, really important, simply because people don't understand what all the hubbub is about. I'm like, you're doing great work for us. Keep it up, because we really need to have this conversation. But what what I, the parallel I'm drawing is that um, for those when we as anthropologists are using race and ethnicity and struggling because we all I think if we're if we're at all conscious we struggle when we use that as a category in, in our data collection as as to its mm -hmm. utility we are all involved in a racist um, activity it, it, it's a it the the use of race to make any meaningful distinctions re reifies and reinforces the racism that precipitated that you know precipitated everything is basically what i'm saying so we're sort of stuck in the granularity of doing research on how we then meet and i think this gets to kara's question about population versus meaningfully then are doing work with things that are fine grain like what are we hanging our hat on and i think it comes to the questions that we we then ask right like if we're asking a question that re requires us to, to ask the question about race then are we asking a racist question what do you think um so The way that I would think about it is to say, to what extent does race and racism inform the way we ask questions? Um, what's the influence here? If it calling things or people uh, immediately, uh, immediately racist or something like that isn't uh, particularly um, helpful because it kind of atomizes things and takes uh, take people and processes uh, out of their context and you know, they sort of individualize this stuff in ways. So that said, I guess the example that I would use is um, the distinctions that people make between uh, ancestry and race. And the, um, the problem with this is that the way that we reckon ancestry um, and uh, in McLean, has done some work on this in his dissertation and Kim Tallbear at the University of Alberta has done some work on this as well, uh, is that the, you have to choose a point in time to uh, decide which kind of ancestry you're trying to, to uh, estimate. And the way that that gets done is largely in terms of race in the sense that um, it, it, it is an effort to ignore all of the uh, all of the 
uh, mayhem and death and and uh, change to the world wrought by uh, world empires and colonialism and and uh, mass movement of people where it's sort of voluntary uh, from the one antipode to the other. That's uh, that's something that um, is very clear clear that we have a uh, pining for something before the modern era because uh, so for some reason uh, evolution should have stopped then and it uh, everything since then is not terribly interesting. So and you know this was an explicit sampling strategy that was taken by people who were doing the human genome um, diversity project to try to avoid any sort of recently admixed population and things like that. So um, there's a kind of a way in which the way that we think about ancestry is thinking about race. It's just not in the moment that we happen to occupy. It's it's stretched out over quite of quite a bit of time. Uh, so, some of the problems associated with this topic, and this is something that you have brought up in the other pieces that you, you actually sent us, but we're, we're not going to discuss for a number of reasons. But one is people don't fully understand evolution, and they likely never will, and that mm -hmm. includes the three of us here, even those of us who use and study evolution, we will never fully grasp all of it. And also, mm -hmm. there are poor arguments like those put forward by Edwards that are used and cited by white supremacists. So this also goes back to what Chris was saying. And there's this mm -hmm. very human tendency to see the inequalities of today and project them backwards into the past, trying to find and claim a biological origin of these inequalities in order to maintain the status quo and, and keep this in, in persistence. So how do we as scientists and science communicators, since this is what we're doing, mm -hmm. confront this? How can we be better about presenting the actual information in a meaningful way. And this goes back to a little bit of the Facebook kerfuffle that I had, I had brought up earlier because you faced <laughs> a number of folks, you know, coming at you and you, you, you went back with a very methodical process. And I don't know if it changed any hearts and minds, but um, I'm kind of curious about your take on it. Excited. Very, here we are. Um, so, uh, well, I think this, I think we need to step back and uh, talk about stakes at this point. And that it seems to me that uh, we are in the midst of a slow review. And um, these are the people whose favorite politicians are about to be in charge. And um, unless something really changes and there is a, a good deal of collective mobilization on uh, more fair-minded uh, people who are interested in a just society. Okay, so uh, this is not a intellectual exercise, this is a fight. Um, and uh, I don't try to change minds when I'm doing this. Uh, to a certain extent, I just kind of like uh, I'll confess to kind of liking aggravating people who are uh, some combination of awful and stupid. That, that that's perfectly fine. Uh, to a certain extent, I'm kind of playing with my food, but it um, it's a uh, you know I'm, I'm not there to convince them. I am there to try to use my expertise to get them to, uh, sort of explain to me what I do and look like a complete idiot in the process. So it's, I don't think that we're, we should be in the business of um, rebutting individual claims um, because they end up doing a version of the Gish Gallop. And, and uh, this is named for, uh, was it Dwayne Gish, who was a, I don't know if he's still alive, but he certainly was a popular creator back in the 80s and 90s, who would win public debates against people who were interested in evolution because he would just throw waves of claims just all of these different claims. And you, you just couldn't wade through it all. And this is one of the problems, is that you have a bunch of loudmouth know-it-alls who have, have it in for academics and think that we're part of some sort of uh, grand conspiracy. Um, and, you know, we can't even get our students to read our syllabi for our courses. You know, with the, There's no conspiracy going on here. I can't even get them to look 
podcast that I recorded <laughs> for them of the person whose work I assigned them to read, which they didn't read. So, yeah, and and so um, if you're a fair-minded academic and you you don't want to step too far out of the things you know about, um, it, that can be difficult to deal with. So. I always try to stay on one point and or always direct it back to one point that I know quite a lot about and have published on. Um, because as, as soon as somebody starts whining that you're appealing to authority and you note that the authority happens to be, you know, you because you're citing yourself um, and the open up the conversation with some technical language and then as soon as you drop more technical language on them they start whining about you obscuring things behind fancy words and things like that um you know if they uh, uh that i think does a lot more for fair-minded and good people in the world uh, or the cause of fair-minded and good people in the world than uh does uh trying to methodically uh, rebut every single claim because we know what and it's not an academic exercise so um well, we just we just uh, gave a, a best practices on how to deal with trolls, Kara. Mm -hmm. You you get very uh, concerned about your trolls. So I do because it gets very personal. I, I mean, they become personal for women. They become personal attacks in many ways. And when you're talking about you know female athletic performance, and there's the mm -hmm. slight hint that ooh, you know, man might not be on top of everything in the world they you know people freak out and i'm mm -hmm. some sort of feminazi <laughs> i sit on a throne of lies chris i know well and you you're an aggressive pedant who cites yourself oh, and I uses te techno babble so you know yeah and uh, i think that uh, a lot of this comes down to some classic moves that have been made for ages and ages and ages and Oh, I think it's it's a classic rhetorical strategy, and mm -hmm. the internet is a great. It just it's just food for that that strategy. It's just like a a, mm -hmm. a nourishing liquid sugar that that you know, like you <laughs> like know, a hummingbird feeder. I, that's, what I was, that's what I'm thinking of. Like they're just like trolls in hummingbird feeders soaking up the Lighting energy. About. And, you know, I don't so, know. You know, uh, I, I guess the if I have a single strategy. A single goal is to try to get them to accuse me of fraud mm. and a conspiracy. Ooh. And so that is where this, you'll talk about, um, uh, they'll, they'll talk about cultural Marxists and their conspiracy, which is uh, you know, not such a dog whistle, but certainly anti Semitic in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, fairly expanded practice going way, way, way back. But this way, if you can do that, they're the one who's crossing over the bounds of, of respectable um, debate and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Yeah, so if you can, yeah, If you can get them to look like ivermectin pounding, uh, tinfoil hat wearing QAnon <laughs> uh, people. So the faculty at the University of Austin um, you, I did bring them up you, in the intro. <laughs> you can um, you can get I think that you can get far because the, the point is not to to convince them, you know. So Sarah, I think we, 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 we managed to accidentally cover what he does for fun too, which is, but, well uh, not quite, yeah. not quite, because I know and I have to bring this up because this is definitely something Charles and I have in common, is that we both love smoking meats. So Oh, well I thought we it was to. Uh, it was looking at pictures of Jupiter landings and uh, uh, eliciting troll responses uh, I mean, to I get it to call it a conspiracy theory. Yeah, yeah but smoking meats too. <laughs> not to, not not to jump ahead, but we're gonna have to have you back on because you oh, have yeah. you have a book you're working on, and um, I'm afraid if we go too far into the weeds, our listeners are gonna be like, oh my god, these and our producers have so many might murder jokes. us. Yeah, yeah, our producers will also murder us if we take this much further. <laughs> No, I just realized that this is probably the closest thing I've given to an academic talk in a long time. Oh. And it explained my state of confusion for the past little while. But yes, when it comes to smoking meats, um, so, you know, uh, one of the things I like to do when I smoke meats is to get something unusual and smoke it. 
Mm. So, um, you know, I don't recommend smoked beef liver. That did not turn out well. That does not sound pleasant. No, it was it was um, it was dreadful. Um, oh. And uh, the but uh, smoked beef heart when you stuffed it with various spices mm. is absolutely amazing. So you like stuff all four chambers with spices? Is that what we're working on? Yeah, I just that uh, sounds awesome, uh, actually. Uh, <laughs> very spicy heart. Um, ha! And the other thing I really like to do is to uh, for an appetizer is after I've taken off the, the main dish and I'm letting it settle, um, I'll uh, put a little bit more wood into the smoker and um, put some um, spam that I've soaked in brown sugar some lots of pepper onto the, into the smoker and let it warm up and, and absorb some of the smoke. And then you just serve it on water crackers with brie and um, honey or jam or even caviar. And it's really quite good. So Thanksgiving is next week. What's on mm -hmm. the menu? Um, turkey. So you're doing a smoked turkey or are you doing some other kind of turkey? I'll just, I'll smoke it. I'll just smoke it. All right. Yeah. I, my, my brother is obsessed with my smoked chicken, so I am smoking two chickens for Thanksgiving this year. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Do you have any unusual smoking recipes? I wouldn't say unusual. So I, I can't remember what kind of smoker you have, Charles. I have, you know, the little R2-D2 trash can style smoker. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm a, I can't do a cold smoke super easily unless I really plan it mm -hmm. out. Uh, but I haven't done anything, and I haven't done anything recently. I feel like I've just been too busy to be mm -hmm. wedded to my back porch for several hours as a plate. Well, I'm going to have to see if we can find the video of my smoker uh, being turned into a Roman candle. Um, yes! <laughs> Please! And we can upload it to YouTube and include it in the show notes for people to watch. I think that would be amazing. Um, Anyway, Charles, this has been an absolute de delight, and I think it was a really incredibly important conversation for us to have, and one that we need to keep on having um, and, at a future date. And so thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and being willing to walk us through all of these different steps in, in a pretty complex situation here. So thank you. Well, I, I, I thank you very much for the in invitation, and it's nice to meet you, Chris. Likewise. Wonderful to chat with you. Yeah. Thank you.